This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to Life Matters. Our new Prime Minister will be sworn in today, but with the ALP a few seats short of a majority, they'll probably need to rely on the Greens and the new crop of independents to govern. We were repeatedly warned in this campaign that we'd have a weak, unstable, ineffective government if it was at the beck and call of the so-called teal independents. How far is that true? We'll explore that today on RN. No clear direction, beholden to minority interests. Hung parliaments have a bad reputation in Australia. And you can see why the major parties might dislike them. More negotiation needed to push their agendas through. But how well does it serve us, the people, when a major party has to do deals with independents or the miners? Do you end up with niche interests running the show? I'd love your thoughts on this today because it's something that's going to affect all of us in the next few years. Did the presence of the independents and the minor parties influence your vote either way this time around? How do you feel about the role of the non-major parties and the independents in Australian politics? We have a couple of guests here today who have done a lot of deep thinking about this issue. Bill Brown is a senior researcher in democracy and accountability at the Australia Institute. Bill, welcome to you. Good morning, Hilary. Hi. And Associate Professor Paul Williams is with the School of Humanities, Languages and Social Science at Griffith University. Paul, great to have you with us today. Good morning, Hilary. Hi. Now, Paul, we know that you can only join us for a limited time this morning, so we'll make the most of it. Are hung parliaments a positive or a negative thing in your view? Well, I suppose it's like beauty in the eye of the beholder. Um, I know a lot of voters don't like them, and certainly the, the political parties, especially the major political parties do make a big deal out of this, as you said, and they use it to scare voters. And we see major party leaders saying, you know, there'll be no deals after elections. But of course, no one really believes them because sometimes hung parliaments do occur. But uh, voters don't have really anything to fear about hung parliaments. Major parties don't like them because it means that they have to deviate from their platform or their agenda. But voters don't have to fear uh, hung parliaments. We saw that. We've seen that a number of times at state and territory level, uh, and increasingly so because the electorate's becoming increasingly volatile and more independents and minor parties are elected. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've even seen it federally recently in, in uh, the parliament after the 2010 election, for example, and that's that parliament is often cited as one of the better ones in Australia because it was very, very efficient. It's got more legislation passed in those three years than the previous three years under Kevin Rudd. Uh, and again, looking at Queensland, uh, you know, Queensland is a, a state which normally come, has uh, governments with huge slumping majorities that stay in for a long time. But we have had our share of minority uh, governments and hung parliaments. And uh, and the uh, ethicist Noel Preston, for example, has written widely about this. And he actually considered that the, the parliaments uh, in the 1990s that were hung as, as some of the best that Queensland ever had because MPs were really well behaved and uh, and they listened to their electorate. Well behaved um, MPs, good on well, on the other hand, you know, the business community demands stability, and that's understandable. They want to make business investments. Uh, they want to borrow uh, money, and they, and they want certain conditions so they can do business forecasts. So the business community uh, doesn't like hung parliament. So from their perspective, uh, it would be seen as disruptive or uncertain uh, and uh, and so that's you know they would they would sort of take the major parties view, but you know given that MPs tend to be on the best behaviour in hung parliaments because you never know when there's going to be a by-election or you never know when the parliament's going to be, the, the the parliament's going to be dissolved and there's going to be an early election. Parliament, a hung parliament can be incredibly responsive to the electorate's needs. Of Does course, as you say, 
that's dependent on who's uh, holding the balance of power in that in that hung parliament. Well, yes, and also I wonder is it is it dependent too on the the way it's done? I know that in the twenty ten uh, government there were formal written agreements between the Greens and the minority government. Does it does that uh, make a difference to to how stable and effective that can be? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's, there's no simple, uh, simple formula. Um, you know, if you look at uh, the relationship between the Liberals and Nationals, for example, you might consider that a political deal, which it is. Uh, and there's always a formal coalition agreement written after every election where they rewrite the rules about who's going to which port- get portfolio, which is the shadow portfolio, etc. But we don't um, see that agreement, do we? Uh, and- no, we don't. We don't. That's uh, that's something um, that's private between the parties. I think it's probably uh, we do we do know certain information. You know, it used to be in the old days that the trade minister would always go to the nationals and agriculture minister always go to the nationals and so on, and the deputy prime minister will shall be shall be the leader of the nationals. So there are certain things that are made obvious, but uh, but it is a private agreement because political parties are not public organisations; they're semi-public organisations, so they don't have to share everything. Although it's probably in the best interest of Australian democracy that they did, uh, but uh, yet the. There, but of course, there are deals all along, and as you say, that some could be very um, formal with some details. And we saw, for example, again when Julie Gillard uh, accepted the support of uh, Andrew Wilkie um, and uh, the Greens, um, and about because and they're both keen to do something about poker machine reform. We saw um, Julie Gillard uh, take the unusual step of uh, saying we're going to do something about poker machines, mandatory com- pre-commitment, etc which is unusual because poker machines are a state issue and you saw a national government engage in this. And, uh, and, and of course, we all know that there was blowback for the, for the government. And, and quite frankly, I don't think Julie Gillard wanted to go down that path. Julie Gillard didn't really want to go down um, the pricing carbon path, but was sort of um, hemmed in by the the uh, the hung parliament and the and the those who are offering support, but it could be you know, down to a handshake and, and where um, the... the, the uh, Members on the crossbench merely say, we will support you in confidence and supply, meaning that if there's a vote of no confidence, we'll support you in the House uh, and we won't block supply, we, as, as we saw the, you know, the coalition did in, against Labor in the Senate in 1975. But other than that, uh, these independents might say, uh, all bets are off. So if, you are, if there is malfeasance, if there is corruption, if, if, you are, if we see something that's really outrageous, we will cross the floor and bring you down. So there's many shades of grey in, in these agreements. Well, yes, and as you say, the independents might do this or they might do that. They're less predictable than people aligned with the major parties. Uh, does it then depend a lot on who you're working with? Do you, do you have any thoughts about how that might play out for, the, for this government? Yeah, absolutely. It's at one hundred percent. It's on who you're dealing with, and uh, and and how big that crossbench is, and how representative or unrepresentative it is of Australia. For example, if uh, there was, if so let's say that uh, uh, the uh, the coalition was re-elected, and they uh, they only had one friendly voice in, on the crossbench, it was really, it didn't get quite seventy six, and the person holding the balance of power, there were no other. Um, uh, members of Parliament uh, who might who might come across to the coalition. Let's say it was Bob Catter in the seat of North Queensland in the seat of Kennedy. Well, then that de- the uh, the uh, coalition would do it with uh, do a deal with Bob Catter, uh, and then you might say, well, that's very unrepresentative. You know, Bob Catter is really standing up for North Queensland only, and it's not really representative of the rest of Australia. So you would see um, a direction. You would see pitches leaning towards regional and remote Australia that wouldn't necessarily resonate with the rest of Australia. But similarly, um, you know, you've got the, this huge teal crossbench coming in now, plus, um, you know, up to three uh, Greens MPs in Brisbane alone, mm. as well as Adam Bant in Melbourne. So you're going to see, again, it's wrong to say they're going to vote as a block, 
um, or not necessarily voters of bloc because the teal's not a party as such. And even within the teals, there'll be varying shades of, of commitment to things like, uh, you know, everything from integrity to climate change. There's a general agreement that there will be subtle differences between these MPs. So it, I think it's wrong to assume that there will always vote as a bloc, but they probably will most of the time. Um, but that certainly more, offers more certainty than, say, just a collection of community activists from every state uh, who probably the only thing they have in common is that they reject uh, the major party system, which is similar to what we've seen in the past, you know, with the One Nation types, uh, you know, one, one Nation candidates, members often come and, you know, come into the party, then resign um, because they can't agree with the party, mm. uh, the party's position on something. So you're quite right. It does depend on the personalities of the MPs. It depends on uh, where these MPs are coming from. Lots of texts coming in on this discussion. Paul Williams from the School of Humanities, Languages and Social Science at Griffith University. Paul's an associate professor there. We have with us too Bill Brown, Senior Researcher in Democracy and Accountability and Accountability at the Australia Institute. And we'll be taking your calls in a few moments on this idea of a hung parliament, minority governments and how well they work, how effective, how stable, uh, whether they are in fact chaos, as the major parties like to tell us ahead of uh, various elections. But uh, texts saying the, the less seat the two major parties have the better. Uh, Ron in Canberra in the ACT says, hung parliament, minority parties, the deals will be above the table instead of below it. And Sam says it's good that the new independents aren't party hacks but have had a variety of careers, some with much-needed science backgrounds like two teal doctors. What about, Paul Williams, that idea of how democratic it is, how representative it is having people in who aren't career politicians um, and are actually representing the interests of their electorates rather than towing the party line, but then as you say, they could just be a kind of niche interest. Look, I think most Australians will find it very refreshing uh, that, that there are people in the parliament who are not career politicians. You know, this has become, you know, this has become a catch-all uh, lament, I think, of a lot of Australians, and this is one of the reasons why we're seeing um, a, a huge um, minor party vote. I mean, about one in three Australians voted for a party other than the Labor Party or the Coalition parties. That's the biggest non-major party vote since the founding of the major party system or the bipolar party system in 1910. Um, so clearly there's a rejection. There's, you know, there was a rejection of Scott Morrison, but there was also no, no loving embrace of Labor, let alone Anthony Albanese either. Uh, so people are looking for fresh third, alternative, third alternatives. It's it's a trend we've seen reflected in Western Europe. Um, so it's not unique to Australia. Um, look at France. You know the two party, the old two party system there dissolved some time ago. Um, so it's it's something we've seen. We're going to see increasingly. This is not a fad. That's the key point. I think this is not a fad. These teals aren't going to be wiped out in the in the two thousand and twenty five election. I think these people are here to stay. I think we're probably sorry about that. Oh yeah. Um, these people are here to stay, and uh, we and uh, I think it's it's uh, it's refreshing that, that there are people who are not part of the uh, the, the, the part the, the establishment, um, and I think it does uh, offer something new to Australian democracy that to get these third voices in, and more to the point, they're not. You know, again, they're not, the point is they're not fringe candidates. Um, they are not people who, you know, who, who might some consider wacky views. These are, you know, mainstream professionals uh, in the capital cities who ref, who are really representing what many people feel have been um, voices that haven't been listened to. Um, you know, I think Scott Morrison has pitched, um, and perhaps um, um, to some extent, um, at, uh, the, uh, the previous Liberal National Party governments were pitching to the outer suburbs and the regions because that's where their support base was. And I think the Teals have come along and the Greens have come along because um, 
the, the, the critical mass of populations in Australia's capital cities have really haven't been listened to for the past three, uh, three terms. On that, um, I wonder, Paul Williams, do you think the National Party held the Liberals back from implementing some policies that might have gone down better with those inner city heartland voters that they lost this time around? Did that coalition solution to a hung parliament backfire for them in a sense? Well, um, it's, I don't think it was just the, the National Party holding them back. I think it was also the conservative wing of the Liberal Party. And this is, and this is the great existential threat in which the Liberal Party finds itself today um, and, and the Labor Party to a lesser extent. But, you know, the Liberal Party really has to sort out which sort of party is it. Um, you know, the, John Howard and others like to talk of the broad church. It has a Liberal wing and a conservative wing. Well, we haven't seen much liberalism in the Liberal Party really since the end of the Howard days uh, and certainly through the Tony Abbott and um, Scott Morris days it really has been a capital c party and and clearly um small l progressive liberals in the capital cities uh were holding their nose because at least that was better than labor and high taxes they thought but now we've got uh you know the teals come along to say well that's not necessarily the case you know we've lost our uh, small l liberal um progressivism and uh, you know in in the in, in the, the vein of the of the great australian liberal prime ministers like alfred deacon and robert menzies uh and they're looking for a liberal party that's liberal not a liberal party that's conservative um and and i think this is again so there's no doubt that australia stepped to the center left over the weekend and and, and for a liberal party to say that the as some liberals are already saying uh, in order to win back middle Australia, we need to become even more conservative, I think is a forlorn hope, a forlorn dream. Um, and so the Liberal Party risk becoming quite, um, you know, alienating itself from middle Australia. If it no longer represents, you know, you know what we might call common sense mainstream positions, uh, and it's you know it wants to run a cultural war or you know ultra conservative um, position in, in, that wouldn't be out of place in Trump America. Uh, I think that uh, you know the Liberal Party locks itself out of Middle Australian political discourse for a generation. Well, as you said though, there was no big embrace of the ALP, but perhaps it's a marriage of convenience, Paul Williams, and love will grow with time. Thanks so much for joining us today on Life Matters. It's my pleasure. Associate Professor Paul Williams from the School of Humanities, Languages and Social Science at Griffith University. What a lot of text coming in. Steve from Mullumbimby points out that the words political party didn't appear in the Constitution until 1977, when after the dismissal, Section 15 was altered in regard to the filling of casual vacancies to the Senate, says Steve. He says there are so many instances where democracy is degraded due to the promulgation of the myth that the Australian political system was designed to be run by political parties. Steve says it's a parliament of the people by design, not a parliament of political parties. We should keep it that way. Now, Bill, I'll come to you in a moment, but I do want to take a couple of these calls who've been waiting very patiently on the line. John Paul is in Melbourne and Queensland. Hi, John Paul. Yeah, hi. I'm currently at Woomagala, actually, just beyond the turn-off to uh, Holbrook in the middle of Wiradjuri country, probably halfway between uh, for Gundagai and Albury. But, yeah, I've been traversing the... uh, the, the, I guess you call it the centre, the, the central New South Wales and uh, area for the last, well, most of the electorate, the election campaign actually, just mm. meeting people, talking to people. I'm not an active campaigner. I'm a member of no party, but I'm glad of the results and the change, and I <laughs> foresaw it. But um, yeah, I think um, the last speaker was that Paul Williamson. Yes, Paul Williams. He's, he's spot on, and it's good to hear from someone who's. Uh, academically learned in this because a lot of the people on TV are just journalists <laughs> we're reading on auto queue and uh, we are supposed to be a democracy we are supposed to have the choice to vote for anyone whether it's an individual a party 
And I don't think that the... I think this result goes to show that the Australian population are not just one or the other. We are not just conservative or progressive. We're not just country party, NFF, National Party or Labor. And, and even people don't understand that the National Party and then the NLP evolved out of the country party and agrarian socialism mm. prior to 20th century communism. And um, so there are people who are losing their farms, who are losing their livestock, who are losing their livelihoods, who are having to sell their property to developers and be ashamed of the Levitt towns that are revolving around their once beautiful communities. I'm looking at land here right now, mountains, hills, trees, and uh, it would be a shame if a farmer who can no longer graze here or whatever has to sell this and turn it into a resort. (laughs) Well, and John Paul, it's really interesting that I think that that, uh, goes to the idea that in Australia we have to choose someone to vote for that best aligns with our values. That might not happen all the time. It might be a really difficult choice. So now there's more choice. John Paul, very happy at mixing things up. Stephen in Melbourne, welcome to you. What are your thoughts on the idea of the independence becoming such a power in politics? Well, I was struck by the comment earlier about uh, the niche part, the the niche interests holding government to ransom or whatever. And then I realised that over the last nine years, the niche interests of the nationals have actually uh, held the Liberal Party to to ransom. And we we remember those... times last year when the Nationals you know, spat the dummy about uh, climate change. And I guess so, you could argue, though, Stephen, that we knew that. I mean, we'd, we'd seen that coalition agreement in action for a long time and people voted for them. Well, as I think your commentator Paul Williams said, we actually don't know what's the details of the, the, the coalition agreement. It's never been published. It's always been a secret agreement. So we have known, you're quite right, going into the election that the Nationals will be in coalition with the Liberals, but we've never known what precisely will happen. And the other point I'd like to make is this, that even though you go into an election with a policy, uh, lots of things happen during the, during the term of government that aren't actually in the, in the mandate. And so within political parties, there are these huge factional fights we saw that, as I said, between Liberals and Nationals and also within the Liberals. And so the, the parties themselves are coalitions that require negotiations. The fact you might have negotiations outside those parties is uh, just a, an added complication that uh, isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean the sky is going to fall in. Well, yeah, fingers crossed. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks. Our phone number one three hundred trip double two double five seven six. I'd love your thoughts, particularly if you do have con- some concerns about the role of the independence or uh, minority government. You know, if you you're a little worried about how a hung parliament might work, because as we've been hearing from our guests uh, and our talkback calls, it can go either way, can't it? If whether you've got a long term formalised agreement of of a coalition that's a solution to not being able to govern in your own right, or you're making one by one deals with a range of different independent or minor parties. It can be uh, a little hard to predict at times. Bill Brown uh, is with us. He's a senior researcher in the Democracy and Accountability Program at the Australia Institute. And Democracy and Accountability, Bill, I think are very high on our listeners' minds today. Are hung parliaments fundamentally undemocratic if you've got the balance of power in the hands of only a few people who are perhaps looking at the interests of their particular communities rather than the national interest? I'd argue that hung parliaments are very democratic, uh, at least as democratic as the alternatives 
because they do represent the wider range of political opinions that are out there in our community. That's been particularly stark with this election result where you see the other vote, the non-major party vote, almost as high as the primary vote for the Labor Party. Uh, so those crossbenchers, the Greens, the independents, the minor parties, are going to be giving voice to almost a third of Australia's population. And I think it'll strengthen the Labor government to be incorporating those views in their decision making. Yeah. Sorry. When there's a, when there's a, um, a minority government that uh, uh, does involve, that does turn on a few crossbenchers, and in this case, uh, if it is a minority government, it'll actually be many different crossbenchers weighing in. But even when there's a few crossbenchers, what you see is it's always a majority. It's always a major party joining with the crossbench, giving the crossbench that strength. It's never just that there's one crossbencher making any decisions for themselves. Though there have been some odd deals, haven't there, coming out of hung parliaments. I'm thinking of Brian Harradine, who's famous for you know holding up legislation until he got something for Tasmania. That's true. And that example is interesting because uh, as well as his focus on Tasmania, Brian Harradine had a, a, a limitation on reproductive rights focus. Uh, and some of the changes that he won there endured even after he left the Senate uh, and his vote was no longer required, which suggests that he was um, allowing a, a sentiment from within the coalition to kind of be expressed as well. It wasn't just that that was a focus exclusive to him. Indeed. Uh, lots of people wanting to chat with us today, Bill, on the phone line and the text line. Text from L: the role of independence in the parliament. Ask your guest experts about the role of Senator Brian Harradine. There we go. We were just there before you, L, in bargaining for the banning of the RU486 medication for his vital vote in favour of selling, selling telecom. Maria in Bowen in Queensland says, hung parliament, let's change the language to multi-representative parliament. Absolutely the best outcome for a vibrant progressive government and for the future of our democracy says Maria. Was is in the Indi electorate, which has been a fascinating case study in uh, independent independence running for the last few years. Was high. Good morning, Hilary. How are you? Good. What's been your experience of independence in your area? Well, as I was explaining to your producer, what, um, what occurs, or in my experience of what occurs, is that you end up with a, a representative who has canvassed very strongly throughout the electorate and um, and takes on the concerns of, of those people in the electorate. So what we've ended up with is a, a very accessible local member. Uh, and in the case of Helen Haynes, we've ended up with someone who's taken a uh, an integrity bill to the parliament, taken on the concerns of a lot of people in the electorate, as well as the broader Australian community. But was, do you find that there's a tension sometimes? Because the person running as an independent surely must bring their own views and and things that they want to achieve to the role. If they're having to consult with the, the whole community and trying to represent everyone, isn't that a really difficult task if you don't have an overarching set of policies and structures and values that that uh, come with being, belonging to a major party? I think, I think that's a fair point, but I would argue that, um, that there are many people in political parties who have their own viewpoints, and despite the, uh, the influence of their parties and indeed their electorate, they still have their own strong views, and I would I'd mention Matt Canavan as one of, of those sort of people. So if you're thinking about an independent being sort of uh, less consistently aligned, I think there are other examples that would, um, 
that would say that that could occur anywhere in the uh, in the parliament. And was how different was that experience for you of actually being listened to and having someone widely canvas, canvas opinion compared to other people who've held that seat of Indi? Well, I think what's, what what happens when you've got a party uh, representative or, or a member, a representative who is a member of the party, that their primary allegiance is often to the party, which you may agree with many of the policies and directions that the party has, but that particular member is very constrained uh, in in what they can put forward as a representation. It feels like the the constituents of that electorate may well be sort of a, a secondary concern in the list of uh, priorities of, the, of that particular candidate or that particular member. Was it's been great to hear from you from uh, Independent Heartland. Thank you. Thank you. This election was framed in terms of uh, being influenced by women and what women want and the issues pertaining to women in the lead up and in the last few years that have got so much media coverage. How did you feel about it? If you were a woman strolling into the polling booth on Saturday or beforehand and saying, how will this affect my vote? Bill, uh, we sometimes uh, can be a bit anxious about the idea of hung parliaments. They've kind of been held up as a bugbear in Australia. How does the international uh, context compare? The reality is that hung parliaments and minority governments are very common internationally. Across Europe, you see proportional representation systems routinely return uh, minority governments. Uh, Germany's a, a classic example. Uh, our neighbour New Zealand too, although it's recently had a majority government elected, its proportional representation system means that you normally have minority government and the negotiation and compromise that that brings with it. Uh, but you don't need to look internationally to see uh, hung parliaments as well. Uh, I was looking it up last night and most Australian states and territories have had a minority government at some point in the last 10 to 15 years. So I think there'd be people who didn't even notice that they were living under a minority government because it works perfectly seamlessly. It allows for other ideas to be ventilated, but it doesn't ultimately interfere with the operation of government. We're speaking with Bill Brown, who's a senior researcher in democracy and accountability at the Australia Institute. And those, I think, are two key words of our talk back today. So many callers very excited about the prospect uh, of uh, having independence to negotiate with a minority government. Uh, a hung parliament is democracy at work for the people, not the divisive and damaging politics we've seen for well over a decade, says Frederick in Parramatta via text. Peter, sorry, Ivan's on the line from Melbourne. Ivan, welcome to you. Hello. How did it go in your electorate? Well, I think uh, Kate Thwaites got it and Jagger Jagger. And she is? Uh, she's Labor, mm-hmm. but she's a good representative. Um but as Tony Abbott once wrote to me, that's the beauty of democracy. And the more independent votes with females in Parliament, the better. Indeed. Barry Cassidy apparently recently said democracy is always going to disappoint us because it's based on compromise. Are you feeling hopeful about the next few years, Ivan? Definitely. I look forward to nine years of it. And are you happy that there's a Labor incumbent in Jagger Jagger? Would you have been worried if it was an independent? Uh, I know Kate Thwaites' office is extremely helpful. Um, Would I worry about an independent? Not necessarily, but I think Kate's got it. And good luck to her. Uh, 
but in Australia you can get onto any parliamentarian's office you like just by ringing Parliament House. Well, that's that's access for you, and congratulations to you, Ivan. I'm not sure not everyone's been as lucky. Thanks for your call. Okay. Uh, Tinny is uh, calling in from Melbourne. She's a Greens member. Hi, Tinny. I think we've got you on the line, Tinny. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. Yeah, I'm feeling very positive about, well, the Greens, but also just the general... Um, Increase, massively increased involvement of women in the parliament, the massive increase in diversity, including in, in um, the Labor Party as well. The Labor Party had an increased number of diverse candidates. And just really positive about the possibility of being, of, of, of the parliamentary, like the, the major parties being held to account by broader range of, of diverse views and also having to negotiate. I think Parliament should be a place where there's lots of negotiation, not just a kind of rubber stamp for whatever the government decides in the day is going to happen. So for the Greens, yeah. do you feel like there's a danger yeah. of the independents uh, splintering some of the vote that might have helped shore up uh, a power base for the Greens? Is a party still in development? I because, I mean, they are climate related. I certainly can't speak, I can't speak for the Greens at all. Please understand <laughs> sure. that. I'm just a member. But, um, yeah, look, I don't think it's a major issue in terms of the kinds of independents that have been elected because those independents, a lot of them, I mean, obviously they're, they're not completely aligned, but a lot of them have very strong climate policies. Um, and that was one of the things that I feel like the Greens were really focused on in the lead up to the election, um, that that has to be a big a big focus for the coming parliament. And I think it might hopefully, having the Greens and the independents there, um, focus the attention of the parliament on climate change and doing something about the climate. That's what it feels like to me anyway. Like mm. I said, I don't speak for the Greens. Please no, don't and it will be very interesting yeah. to see, you know, how nicely people play on, on a range of issues, not just climate. Tinny, thanks for your call. We'll encourage that. Sorry, yeah. say that again. Thanks very much for the ta- taking the time. I just said I think it would encourage that. Uh-huh. It encourages, encourages people to play nicely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great to have you with us today. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Now, how yeah, are you feeling? Sorry about that. That's right. Look, I, well, uh, overall, I'm feeling elated, actually, um, because I think at the heart of the challenges we face, but with a two-party system, they have become so deeply, deeply factional. And I think testimony is of the behaviour or the response to parachuting Christine Keneally. But in, our, in my seat here in Newcastle, Sharon Clayton, who is a, a really a very effective uh, member, actually increased her vote. So there was a swing towards her, which I think is indicative of the, the real challenges that we face uh, overall in terms of how Australia votes. So she's, is she Liberal is, or Labor, Greg? So she's uh, Labor. So Newcastle, uh, the seat of Newcastle has been Labor for well over a century. So it's uh, very, very strongly that. However, and- interestingly, in the Hunter, which we had a number of independents and the Greens were quite active, um, the the new member now is a Labor as well, and the, he also experienced a swing towards him, but it was a swing against the Nationals, which I think is quite interesting given that no sitting National members have actually lost their seats compared to the Liberals. So it, it's where does Barnaby Joyce Well, indeed, and it's such an interesting uh, part of the country when it comes to climate discussions, isn't it, Greg? How do you feel that's going to go there if we've got uh, climate-motivated teal independence and Greens being stronger uh, as a a voice in government now? Well, 
given that I've had some involvement in the whole environmental discussion up here, particularly with um, Jobs Hunter, the I think it's just a wake a huge wake up call for the ALP that they do need to work hand in glove with that electorate response. And and if if we are to take what uh, Albanese was saying at his acceptance speech is that he is governing or being the Prime Minister for all of Australians. He also needs to balance up those communities that are going to be affected deeply by the change, and particularly here in Newcastle and the Hunter, um, because there are a lot of allied industries that do rely on a traditional energy uh, system. Mm. And you know, that's the impact that's going to have. Now, they should have planned this years ago, and... Uh, rightly, as the Australian Institute and numerous think bodies have been saying, we could have done this 10, 20 years ago, uh, very similar to what I guess the Germans did. But for some reasons, we just seem to be dumbasses at this game. So I don't know. <laughs> Greg, great to hear from you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Bill Brown, uh, what about the nationals in all of this? We heard about the lower primary vote for both the majors, and it seemed to be a bit of a game of who do you hate the most, but the National Party did well compared to the Liberal Party. What's happening? That's right. Uh, the National Party has held on to, it looks like, all of their seats. I think there's one that's still uh, in the count, but not looking bad for them. Um, uh, there's still going to be some soul-searching because there are seats that were safe for the Nationals that have become marginal, and the success of Cathy McGowan and then Helen Haynes in Indi proves that this Voices for Push, these independents, uh, can be just as appealing in the country as they are in the city. Um, but it's been a relatively good uh, election for the Nationals. The soul-searching, I think, will come from within the Liberal Party of whether they're getting everything that they need out of the coalition agreement. And we heard um, the beginnings of that discussion with Simon Birmingham on the weekend, talking about um, the reflection that's required from the Nationals from their role as a coalition partner. Um, but I think it remains to be seen. Uh, text message, just because someone is independent does not imply their view will prevail, only that their view be represented. That's a really important point to make. And Jean joins us from Toowoomba. Hello to you, Jean. Hello there. And yes, I do think that um, the Teals um, profess to be independents, but they are really answerable to the people who finance them, who is Robert Holmes at court. Simon Holmes at court? Yes, and we don't know what their other issues are. It's just climate change, which no one's going to influence anyway, while China is massively polluting the world by churning out all these... uh, solar panels and windmills with their big factories. So it's just a bit of a circus to me. And I think that uh, at least the Labor will, um, Labor people cannot have an independent thought. So the independents might be a, a, a little bit of a shock to them. So, Jean, are you worried that it's harder to find out about the policies of the independents and the kind of overarching vision and values than it is of the major parties, even though they both have, you know, they have written policies, they have websites you can go to to see what they say they stand for. Are you worried it's harder to to get the accurate picture with the independents? Yes, because when they are on uh, interview, they seem to be just pushing climate change. So they're really just teal greens. So we really just have a bigger representative greens, which is not taking into account the um, people who are going to suffer mightily with their policies. Greens' policies are simply Marxism. They want to take from the rich and give to the poor.
That's their policy. And it's not going to work. It's going to send this country broke. So I'm sorry, but I am very concerned. I hope the independents will have enough, since they're so well educated, that have enough intelligence to keep the Greens in check. Well, Jean, it's, it's great to hear from you as someone who is concerned because the, the, the weight of opinion so far has been in the other direction. And I think it's fine to have legitimate concerns about uh, any change to how things are, or even a perceived change to how things are run in Australia. Thanks for your call. Tell us your thoughts, uh, pro, con or nuanced, a bit of mixed about the role of the independence, the increasing role of independence in Australian politics. Good to get a range of views here on Radio National. My name's Hilary Harper. This is Life Matters. And our guest... Today is Bill Brown, who's a senior researcher in democracy and accountability at the Australia Institute. Now, Bill, a lot of people might be wondering exactly how effective uh, a hung parliament when you negotiate with, with the minors or independents is for getting legislation through. I mean, does it have an impact on how much legislation and what kind of quality legislation you can pass? Yeah, the record of hung parliaments is pretty good when it comes to a legislative agenda. Uh, People have looked at the 2010-2013 hung parliament as an example there. And uh, compared to uh, parliaments throughout Australian history, both, uh, you know, uh, hung parliaments and majority ones, um, it it does well on measures both of how much legislation they passed uh, as well as the low rate of legislation being proposed and not passed. Part of the consideration there is that the Australian Senate is almost always uh, a minority government, if you like, um, it, with very few exceptions. There's a crossbench with the balance of power in the Senate, a, a feature of its proportional representation. So there's always going to need to be negotiation involved in the process of making legislation uh, and having that required for the House of Representatives as well just puts a bit more impetus behind getting the negotiations right. Uh, There's even a theory that it's good for governments to have to negotiate before they get their legislation through, because it does stop them from proposing legislation that is too controversial or without that broad community support. And the classic example is the Howard government's pursuit of the work choices legislation um, when it had a majority in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Um, after the 2004 election, uh, which certainly seemed to have been a a misstep that harmed it in the Rudd slide of 2007. Um, So there's benefits for the government for having to negotiate uh, as well as risks. Well, yeah, there's that idea of how big a mandate a government's perceived to have. Does that affect how effective a, a hung parliament will be? I think the the mandate or the share of votes that are party gets, and particularly its share of the two-party preferred vote, is something that crossbenchers take into account. Uh, It's hard to say no to legislation that that a party has taken to the electorate. Um, But the reality is that less than 50% of people uh, vote for the major party that forms government, even when they do get a majority of the seats in the House of Representatives, and that's been the case for a long time in Australia. So those other representatives have a mandate behind them as well from the people who voted for them. Uh, Looking at Labor's position, they have a healthy two-party preferred vote of about 52%. 
There are governments that have formed majority government with a two-party preferred vote well below that. So I think they're as entitled to kind of claim a mandate as any other government is, but the other people in the parliament are just as entitled to claim the mandate that they get from their share of the vote. Our Facebook page at ABC Radio National is a bit of a mixed bag today, I have to say, on the idea of hung parliaments and how effective governments are when they do have to negotiate. Uh, John says the more independence, the greater chance of government stalling for three years. Bernie says not much difference here in grey in South Australia. It's such a huge seat and coming soon after the state election, the independent couldn't cover all of it. Sad face emoji. I mean, it is the vast majority of South Australia, grey. And Burned on Facebook says we've elected an independent in the last four terms in Clark in Tasmania, near Hobart, waiting in Hobart, waiting for the rest of the country to wake up. He says, this election is a small start, but I don't ever want to see the LNP or ALP with more than a third of the seats in Parliament again. It's time we embrace representative democracy, which means elect someone to represent you in your electorate when they go to the Parliament, not backroom major party career politician deals. Bill Brown, do we worry then about a kind of splintering of partisanship where everybody's just looking looking after their own particular local interests, an extreme localisation of politics? I don't think we've seen that trend happen so far. Um, The voices of movements have expressed local concerns but also had national concerns like integrity and global concerns like climate change, uh, I would say, feature more prominently than those local issues. So I, I don't think that there's necessarily a concern there. Um, The reality is that Australia is somewhat unusual in having a two-party system and strong party discipline. Uh, Other parts of the world where two parties dominate uh, typically have more politicians crossing the floor. So there's more room to build informal coalitions with a bit more flexibility about local issues. Um, I'd also push back against the idea that a large crossbench necessarily leads to stalling. And particularly in the scenario we're looking at here, where the major party has close to a majority, and it remains to be seen if they get a majority, but close to a majority and a large crossbench, that actually gives them many different paths to pass their legislation, many different people that they can work with on different issues. Uh, I think we'll also see uniformity of opinion on issues like the importance of climate change and an integrity commission with teeth. We're actually looking at a super majority of seats there. So there's plenty of room for uh, collaboration and uh, a clear direction. Room for collaboration. I like it. Potential. Good. We've got time for a few more calls, I think, before we have to wind up on Life Matters today. Let's go to David in Canterbury. David, is that Canterbury in Victoria or elsewhere? Canterbury in Victoria. Thanks. Look, I've done a bit of research on this because I got in the mailbox a thing saying that voting independent risks a chaotic hung parliament with weak leadership. Uh, The ACT has had successful minority governments, or hung parliaments, but minority governments a better term, for 29 of the past 33 years. The one recognised Australian federal hung parliament in the last 79 years, we've only had one, was the Gillard government. They introduced the NDIS, Gonski funding for education, carbon pricing, the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, the National Broadband Network and the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. So that doesn't sound like chaotic government with weak leadership. Interesting, um, yeah. Those, some of those things uh, didn't, like, didn't go the distance, did they? The carbon price, for example. 
No, that didn't last. But they actually passed more legislation per day in office than any government in Australian history. And that was, uh, quote, hung parliament. More than 90% of its legislation was passed. So I'd say minority government is not a recipe for chaos. It's a recipe for bargaining, restraint and diversity and a recipe for legislation that will do long-term good for the people instead of, as Bill was saying, the one time when we've had a non, when we, we had a majority in both houses with, when Howard rammed through work choices, which eventually was for short-term political gain and eventually was a significant factor in his downfall. Mm. David, thanks for that perspective. Thanks for doing that research. We've got a, a, a cornucopia of experts on the show today, it seems. Eva Cox is calling from Sydney. Eva, welcome to you. What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I really do want to congratulate the uh, the women that have actually set up this particular network of getting women to sort of run for parliament and getting them in. So Kathy McGowan... Your stuff is very good. We have, and women, you know, I've been involved for 50-odd years. I was one of the original women's electoral lobby people. And I just think we've actually had an example of people getting, of women getting out there and changing what's very, still very much a macho sort of institution in many ways. And they can do it. And I think that hopefully a lot more women will do it. And I'm delighted that we've actually seen women being successful as independents. And I just think we really need to sort of look more at people sort of picking up something like that and doing it. Political parties, they're not in the Constitution. They don't sort of really exist in that sort of sense. Yeah, though it's and interesting, Eva, because I looked at some of the teal independents and the, the much-used phrase professional women, I was thinking, surely they're the only people who could manage to do that. You've got to work your guts out for months and months and months. You've got to have a really supportive partner. You've got to have a bit of uh, financial backing. You've got to have some life circumstances that mean you've got, you know, the education and the wherewithal to to run for office. And so it would be great to see even more diversity, wouldn't it, for women who uh, could take up opportunities who didn't necessarily have those supports behind them. Yeah, I mean, I think there should be some, maybe a fund available to people who are avail- who are to sort of want to run as independents with decent sort of views on what's happening. I mean, there's a few people I'd hate to see running as independents because there's also a, a push back towards some fairly conservative people sort of trying to take over. So I just think, we, you know, I'd like to really congratulate the Teals for the what they've done and what they've demonstrated and the fact that they nearly all are women. Mm. And Eva, I just think it's really important that we do that because the agenda currently still sort of sees women's issues, in inverted commas, as something less important. Indeed. Eva, thanks so much for your view. We are running rapidly out of time. I'm sad that we didn't get to go to Anna Lee, who uh, wanted to talk about the burden of caretaking uh, and and work being done by women in those uh, invisible jobs, lack of understanding on government of free care that puts a drain on mothers in particular, social housing, displacement in the Northern Rivers, lots of issues at play for her. Quite a few people have texted in today on this uh, idea of the independence having power in the parliament. Erica says, so wonderful to hear from Eva Cox, one of our all-time feminine heroes, original WEL leader, now congratulating this generation of leaders. Another person says, with 25% of voters born overseas, we no longer have the traditional base supporting the two parties. 
another high RN. Further on all of this election discussion, most people were sick of career pollies many, many years ago, but had few choices or alternatives. So much better to have someone standing for election who listens to locals and actually represents them. It seems Labor are a lot better at this than the Libs, but it's not about loyalty. It's about climate and saving our environment. So whoever will protect the environment and listen is the choice. That's their view. Lisa, meanwhile, says, if I could handle the cold, I would move to Tassie from Victoria to vote for Andrew Wilkie. So impressed with him. Thoughtful, smart and civil. Excellent independent. A reminder, it's not whether they're independent, it's the calibre of the candidate. I wanted to quickly ask you, Bill Brown, I heard two analysts, two uh, former Labor strategists on RN Breakfast today talking to Patricia Carvella saying that this is the end of the major parties. Within the next few years, they thought this is the end. Very briefly, what's your take on that? I think this does represent a risk for both major parties. That low primary vote for the Labor Party uh, will be something they're thinking very seriously about. It it does uh, offer the opportunity or or the risk that they get um, a similar independent push against them. And in some ways, the fact that the Greens have picked up Liberal seats that might otherwise have gone to Labor points to the the risk of that low primary vote. But on the other hand, having this broad, diverse, representative crossbench gives Anthony Albanese the opportunity to fulfil his promise to govern for all Australians. So it's a bit Uh, wait and see. I think we're out of time today. But Bill Brown, very much appreciate you joining us. Senior Researcher, Democracy and Accountability Program at the Australia Institute. Earlier you heard from Associate Professor Paul Williams from Griffith University as well. And thank you for all your calls and texts today on Life Matters. Tired of your desperately mundane day-to-day? Ground down by numbing routine. Defeated by endless unthinking repetition. Yes, well, sorry about that. Life, eh? We can't change any of that, but we can transport you on journeys of the mind. Return Ticket, it's the podcast that takes you on flights of fantasy. I'm Jonathan Green. I can't change your life, but I can take your ears on adventures. Join me now on the ABC Listen app. Welcome to the Life Matters Inbox. Let's hear some of the feedback on our stories from the past week with Emma Nobel. Hi, Emma. Hi, Hilary. Uh, Yep, lots of listeners wanting to uh, write in and share their views. On Friday, we talked about online dating uh, and how people are meeting their partners uh, with author and journalist Jennifer Pinkerton. And Deb in Adelaide wrote, I met my husband Ian 20 years and three months ago uh, on a dating app that was renamed RSVP. We couldn't be happier. We are aged 50 and 55. And we remember to the day when we met, which is lovely. (laughs) While Wendy says, I'm a 61-year-old Canberran and tried dating apps for a couple of years after the end of a 24-year relationship. 50 dates, but no one that I wanted to progress to a relationship, which is what I was after. I've been off them for two years as disappointing, but about to jump back in, says Wendy. Good luck, Wendy. On our conversation on the discrimination that people with disability experience, in particular the gap between policies and laws and attitudes, Jen Seen in Melbourne writes, after 40 years in the UK, it's worrying to see how little attention is given to making buildings accessible to wheelchair users. 15 years ago, says Jen Seen, my friend in Scotland was building a new home which had to be wheelchair accessible, including a bathroom. All the new houses I see springing up around me have flights of stairs even to get in. What hope? 
And we also explored the role of citizen juries. Linda writes, as a former criminal judge's associate having impaneled jury trials for many years, I strongly believe that citizens participating in democracy, be it trials or collectively having input about policies at local state level, will be the way of the future. And it was interesting, Hillary, to hear uh, in that discussion to a student's perspective on how uh, that citizen assembly process can work at university. Yeah, he was really enthusiastic and engaged. Mm. On Wednesday, we asked for your advice on what makes a dinner party go well, and we had a variety of hot takes, steaming hot takes. Linda <laughs> says, I'm a basic cook, and I tell visitors that they come for the company, not the food. We rate our functions by the stories, diversity of views, and laughs. That's a good metric. Oh, and I thought this was a good one too. Uh, another says, my old friend was a chef, and I was always anxious cooking for him, which is fair enough. Uh, then one day he said, as he cooks gourmet all the time, his favourite food is bangers and mash, which is delicious. And Hillary, that discussion also gave me flashbacks to like every time I've been told not to bring a thing, and so I didn't bring a thing, but I, I totally should have brought oh, the know. thing, and that having that realisation was just... It was mortifying. I know. It's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> I got it wrong. Yeah. We also tackled Australia's big 180 on our COVID response from, you know, the daily press conferences to masks becoming quite a rarity. Christine listened back to that episode later in the week. You can do that too on the ABC Listen app. Just look for Life Matters. And Christine writes, I was disappointed that neither guest mentioned the prohibitive cost of rat tests. While ever they cost $12 a test on average, the general population will not monitor themselves and thereby prevent unnecessary spread of COVID. This is such a simple no-brainer. I don't understand why it's not being highlighted in the media. And Julia in Canberra wrote to say, it's refreshing to hear your expert guests voice their views that state and federal governments have dropped the ball in managing COVID this year. Julie says, I choose to wear a mask in most public settings, even though it's expensive and uncomfortable, and I would be happy to follow additional reasonable restrictions if it saves lives. We just need guidance. And John says, thanks for taking up the COVID issue again. Masks are essential in indoor settings. We need the government to set a climate of concern and instruction about COVID rather than switch sweeping it under the carpet, which they're now doing. Uh, and we will have more in the uh, inbox uh, next week. Thank you, Emma. Emma Nobel gathering your feedback from a week of stories that a lot of you had thoughts on. We aim to please. And next time on Life Matters, we'll be getting practical about one of the most emotionally destabilising things that we humans do, moving house. Most of us have to do it from time to time, and yet it never gets easier. I'll ask if there are ways we can ease that pressure, because it has been proven to be one of the most stressful life events. Why is that? Join me for that here on Radio National. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.